What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, first, because we've been told that you're still holding your phone. So <laughs> so if the commercial break keeps getting sooner and sooner, if you're holding your phone, you just hit play. Right next to it, there's a button that says subscribe. Please subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, tell everybody how great it is, even though you haven't listened to it all yet. Second of all, we just had a conversation earlier this week with Marshall Billingsley about the sanctions regime and explaining how sanctions work. Today, we're talking about the military situation on the ground. And boy, oh boy, if you had told us a week ago when we sat down with Jack Keane to talk about this, that... Kiev would still be in Ukrainian hands, that the Ukrainians would be fighting the way they are. I mean, it is just, I followed the Kiev Independent, which has great, great reporting on the ground and posts all these videos. I mean, there was- English a, language. All in English. And in Twitter, you can also hit a button to translate. So the stuff that comes in in, in Ukrainian or Russian, you could just translate with a click of a button. But they posted the other day this video. My daughter actually came up to me and told me about it. A video of a Ukrainian farmer who- pulled up to a Russian tank that had run out of gas, hooked it up onto his tractor, and took off with it. And the Russian soldier is chasing him <laughs> down the street. And he drives it into the town, and everybody's cheering, and they've got the tank. I mean, we see just a few of these things. There are thousands and thousands of acts of defiance like this taking place every day in Ukraine. The Ukrainians are fighting. They are defending their land, and they are holding off a nuclear superpower that has come in and invaded their country. It is just simply remarkable, inspiring, and we're going to get into how are they doing it today with Fred Kagan, who's the head of our Critical Threats Project here at AI and has been mapping out how this war is unfolding. Well, first of all, I think I'm going to have to dispute, given how Russia is performing on the ground in Ukraine, the notion that they are a superpower because, damn, they're doing very badly. Now, I want to put one caution here, which is that we're seeing a pretty one-sided story of this conflict. The Ukrainians have been absolutely remarkable in sharing information, in doing things that inspire their people and make the Russians look terrible. Now, there are the facts that you laid out, which is that Russians have actually taken a couple of towns and then lost them, and the control has gone back and forth. And that is obviously awful. But I think Putin is very focused on the propaganda to his own people. The Ukrainians have been very focused on sharing with the world just what it is they're doing. So we are getting a bit of a lopsided view of this. And by the way, Anonymous, which has uh, yeah. weighing in on this whole thing, they actually hacked into Russian cable television. And instead of seeing Putin's propaganda, because of Anonymous, they're putting videos of Russian tanks being blown up, dead bodies of Russian soldiers, Ukrainians defending their towns. And so they're actually making sure that the Russian people are seeing what's actually happening on the ground, which is remarkable as well. Fantastic. And the one thing that we know is that Putin is seeing this. And this is really a conversation I want to have. Yes, it's important. I want our listeners to hear what Fred has to say about the military state of play. People have suggested that Putin has lost his mind. I think Fred said, I may have even repeated this on the podcast, Fred said the expression in Russian is, walked away from his mind. So, you know, <laughs> 
people are suggesting that Putin has walked away from his mind. I don't know whether he's lost his mind, but this seems like a disaster. Yes, for the Ukrainian people, for sure but for the Russians as well. Well, think about this. If you're in Putin's inner circle, is it a good career move to be the guy who comes in and tells him the bad news? Well, we uh, saw that video yeah. last week, so, right, of his yeah. intelligence. So we saw the video of this staged, unbelievable sort of, you know, like from something from 1962, kangaroo court kind of a staged National Security Council meeting that Putin held. With Putin at one end of the super, super, super long table and everybody else on the other end. I don't know if everybody's seen the movie The Death of Stalin, but I would commend it Oh, it's such it a great you, movie. Especially at this moment, because that was the vibe, yeah. right? The vibe was this guy who was not really okay and in his entire cabinet. And at a certain point, he poses what is obviously a staged question to his chief of intelligence who does not give the right answer. And Putin's response is crushing. And the guy starts stuttering and trembling. And it is absolutely, as you rightly asked, Mark, a disincentive to any of his advisors to say, well, sir, Perhaps things aren't going exactly according to plan. Well, this is one of the things, you know, we keep talking about, as you say, people have been talking about whether he's mentally fit and whether he's the phrase that, that is the term of art is rational actor, yeah. right? In national security circles, is Putin a rational actor? Well, he could not be insane or losing his mind, though that's possible. But he could also just be, because of the nature of his regime and the fear that he instills in his people, not getting good information because nobody wants to bring the dictator bad information. This is a problem, not just in Russia. It's a problem in North Korea. It's a problem in China. It's all the rest of it. No one wants to tell the emperor that he has no clothes. That he has no clothes or that we're losing or that you're going to lose if you do this. They say, yes, comrade uh, president, we will crush the Ukrainians and the people will greet us as liberators and we will denazify the Jewish regime. <laughs> Literally, they're denazifying a country led by the only other elected Jewish president other than Israel. This is the other thing we're seeing is that the Ukrainian ambassador of the UN read a text message exchange from a Russian soldier, which he had exchanged just with his mother just before he died. And he said, Mama, I don't know what I'm doing here. They told us we were going on an exercise. Then when we came in, they told us we would be greeted by liberators. People are throwing themselves under our tanks to try and stop us. It was heartbreaking because this poor Russian kid cannon fodder has, for Putin. is cannon fodder for Putin. He's been sent to Ukraine on a lie. And if you want to know why the Ukrainians are doing so well is because you have these highly motivated Ukrainians who are defending their country from a outside aggressor, an unjust aggressor, fighting against poor Russian peasant kids who've been told that they were on a training exercise and all of a sudden find themselves in a war with somebody who is fighting to the death to protect their country. So Putin has lied to his people and to and his, his soldiers, yeah. and he's probably been lied to by his military, too. I don't think there's any question about that. The one question that really does niggle in my mind, especially after the State of the Union, is whether we've done enough for the Ukrainians. Oh, good God, with, no. Right. But we've come together with, and I will say, this word is correct, unprecedented sanctions, the problem is they're not enough, and they have so many loopholes in them. And we talked about this with Marshall earlier in the week. But that's the first part of this. And the second part of this is that you actually asked Fred about this. The fact that the countries have decided not to provide Ukraine with aircraft 
is really troubling to me, and I can't really understand what's behind it. I wish I understood more. There hasn't been any good yeah, so, reporting. So a lot of the Eastern European NATO allies have MiG fighters, which the Ukrainians know how to use, many of the former Soviet countries. In fact, I remember when Steve Began and Marshall and I went to Poland before NATO expansion, when we were in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, we went to a Polish military base where they had these MiG fighters. And the Polish pilots didn't want to give up their MiGs. They didn't want American no, they knew how to aircraft. No, it was because the cockpit voice was this beautiful Russian woman who had this sultry voice that they had put in it, and they were all in love with her, and they didn't want to give up. I can't remember her name. It was Karina or Katusha or something like that. They all were in love with the computer voice on the cockpit. But they all have these planes that they're basically decommissioned because they're replacing them with Western, much more advanced, better equipment. And they were going to give them to the Ukrainians. And it was announced that they were doing it. And suddenly, the Ukrainian pilots apparently left Ukraine to travel to Poland and some of these other countries, and Romania and some of these other countries, to pick up the planes. And then all of a sudden, the EU announced that it's not happening. Now, there are some reports that they may still be doing it, even though they're saying they're not doing it. This may become covert. I don't know. But just the idea that there's anything that we're denying these people that they need to protect their country at this point, we should be providing them intelligence. We should be providing them with whatever weapons they need. There should be nothing that's off the table short of American troops. And we haven't gotten into a discussion of this, but I don't think we can impose a no-fly zone because the risks are too high. But short of those things, anything the Ukrainians need, we should be giving them. Yeah, we had this same fight about Syria and a no-fly zone that the administration, in this case the Trump administration, didn't want to put a no-fly zone over Syria because it would put us at loggerheads with the Russians. At a certain point, we may have to actually teach the Russians what it is to face up to American power and maybe help them think twice about their adventurism abroad. But that is a, another podcast for sure. In any case, like I'm sure, like you all, Mark and I have been watching really minute by minute, hour by hour, what's happening in Ukraine, really pulling for the Ukrainian people, admiring just beyond their leadership and their president, who has really stepped up in a way that is utterly magnificent. And for anybody who saw him on the Ukrainian Dancing with the Stars, <laughs> the idea that he has become this hero is just staggering to me. Can I tell you a story? The other yeah. uh, Martha McCallum on Fox was interviewing a Ukrainian member of parliament, a female member of parliament. And she said this on the air on Fox News. She said, our president, I'm power Polish so I can do the accent, our president has balls of steel so heavy, American plane could not fly him out. I'm and, hesitant to and, introduce and, our guest immediately. And never have, tr never have, well, we've got an explicit rating, so I can say it. Never have truer words been spoken God, about I wish, it. About I wish I had seen Martha McCallum's face <laughs> when she said that. So you guys know our guest well. Fred Kagan has been on the podcast before, but he's also really one of our preeminent military writers. Strategists served with our commanders in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and he is the director of AEI's Critical Threats Project. He's a former professor of military history at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He is just the best. And, and author of The Surge in Iraq that turned the war in Iraq around. So he's a great military strategist in addition to a student of war. Here's our interview. So Fred, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be back with you. Americans have been absolutely just amazed at the courage and the tenacity of the Ukrainians in facing down this, I almost called it the Soviet Red Army, but it's really <laughs> Putin's effort to reconstitute the Soviet Red Army. A week ago when this invasion began, 
people didn't give the Ukrainians much of a chance, but here we are a week later and they're still standing. How is that? How has that happened? Well, there's a couple of things. One not surprising, shouldn't have been surprising to anyone. One that didn't surprise me that much, although a little bit, and then one that's very surprising. Okay. The thing that shouldn't surprise everybody is that the Ukrainians are fighting like lions. And honestly, you had to really know nothing about Ukraine or Ukrainians to think that they wouldn't. This is something that, given what Putin did in 2014 and what he's been doing ever since, Putin was living in an absolutely, it turns out, a delusional fantasy world in which the Ukrainians had feelings for him other than hatred. And he made it so clear with the way that he invaded what was in store for them. It was a little bit like Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, where Ukrainians just had no doubt whatsoever what was going to happen if they lost this war. And that does tend to motivate you. So they have fought like lions, which doesn't surprise me, but has surprised some people. The thing that didn't shock me, although the scale of it has surprised me, is that the Russians are really screwed up and the Russian military is really screwed up. So we have been reporting on this. And of course, I'm telling everybody this because I think the intellectual honesty is important, but also there's a, it's analytically important. I was wrong in my top line forecast for months. I thought Putin would not order this invasion. And one of the reasons I was wrong in the top line forecast is because it turns out we were right in an underlying assessment, which is that the way the Russians had deployed themselves and prepared for the invasion was almost guaranteed to lead to a screwed up military operation. And boy, did it lead to a screwed up military operation. I was just wrong because I figured he wouldn't order a screwed up military operation and someone would tell him. Apparently, one of those two things was not true. And that was the surprising part. But then it turns out that actually the Russian military writ large is much more screwed up than I think I and a lot of other people thought. And all I can say there in our collective defense is it's really hard to look at an army in peacetime training and know how it's going to do when it actually goes to war. But in this case, boy, they looked a lot better on the training ground than they do in wartime. So I'm really glad that you brought this up because I think this is actually hugely important. And of course, you're right. It's very hard to look at a bunch of guys doing exercises and the quality of their equipment and extrapolate from that to their performance. This is actually one of the really interesting conversations that is being had about the Chinese military right now. They really haven't actually fought in a serious conflict of any magnitude. Am I wrong since World War II? Yeah. Well, yes, they have fought in a few. There was that little excursion into Afghanistan. Right. And they were not covered in glory there. No, not exactly. That was about 110,000 Russian troops at any given time were there. They took a total of about 11,000 dead in that war. By the way, they've probably taken upwards of 2,000 dead in this war already. In a week. Say that number again. They've probably taken about upwards of 2,000 dead in this war already, which is they're probably at about the number that we lost in Afghanistan total. Wow. In a week. In a week. Now, I mean, you know, numbers are numbers, but I think those are not bad estimates based on what we've seen. So they fought in Afghanistan, and that was a big war, and there were things they did well, and then things they did badly, and then they lost. They have been fighting in Ukraine, of course, since 2014, 2015. But to your point, Danny... What kind of stuff have they been doing? It's been individual sort of battalion level activities. So on the order of six to 800 guys at a time, 
moving around independently and doing this sort of covert, sort of overt kind of thing with limited airstrikes, very small scale. And we watched them lining up for this invasion, and we saw that they were putting together a whole bunch of individual battalions drawn from a whole bunch of different regiments and brigades and divisions and stuff. And I was staring at that and saying, no one conducts large-scale mechanized maneuver warfare this way. And now they've just shown us again why. (laughs) Because this is what happens. So they had a lot of experience fighting a certain kind of war that they got comfortable with. And I think they just really did not understand the differences in trying to do it at scale and in trying to do large-scale maneuver warfare, which is very different from what they had been doing. So just a quick follow-up, and I want to get to some of the important questions about how the Allies are helping, what the Ukrainians need, where the Russians are going wrong. But one question that has stuck in my mind over the last couple of days, as the Russians have focused on taking, I know I'm supposed to call it Kiev, but it's still Kiev in my mind. As the Russians have focused on this, we have seen these almost 40-kilometer lines of material, whether it's tanks, it's infantry, whatever it is that they're schlepping along. Are the Ukrainians not capable of actually going up in the air and simply bang, 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 taking that out? So that column is actually very interesting. And I've had the opportunity working with Maxar Technologies, the company that has providing all of this terrific imagery and working with some of their folks to look more closely at that column. First of all, a huge portion of that column is trucks. And a big part of that is logistics because one of the things they screwed up was they weren't set logistically to support a war. That's why they kept running out of gas and food. I mean, they were set up to drive into Kiev and be welcomed with flowers and open arms, not with a bunch of angry Ukrainians shooting at them. So a lot of that column is trust. Look, no one other than the Ukrainian general staff at this point can tell you for sure what the Ukrainians have tried to do to that column or why. The best answer that I can offer is I am certain that the Russians covered that column with air and anti-air defenses as heavily as they could, and that they made it a hard target. And the Ukrainians have limited capabilities to get aircraft in the air and keep them there and to use drones and stuff. And I think, first of all, I'm sure that they tried to do something. But second of all, I think beyond that, you've got to make a judgment call about how much risk you're going to take to shoot at a column of a particular variety, especially when... It turns out that if you let the Russians deploy and start fighting, you can beat them on the ground. So I think that it's a combination of just sort of risk calculus and what platforms you want to put at risk where probably led the Ukrainians to make decisions that ended up not taking a terrible toll of that column while it was driving. Here's a question. Why do the Ukrainians have so few air assets and so few drones? If we all saw this coming and this possibility, then why have we not armed them to the teeth with those capabilities? And as a coda to that, we just saw in the news that EU countries were going to give them a bunch of MiG fighter jets, excess fighter jets that they're not using anymore. And then all of a sudden, everybody pulled it back. Now, there's some reports that the Poles may be quietly giving them to them anyway. We don't know. What do you know about that? And why didn't we give them a whole bunch of fighter jets before the invasion? Why didn't we give them drones before the invasion so that they could use for this very purpose? Well, they've been buying drones from the Turks, and the Turks have been very happy to sell them drones. I don't know enough about what everybody's production capabilities are along that specific kind of thing. Look, I can offer you various rationalizations for this including Ukraine, doesn't have a very large economy. People were very focused on corruption of the Ukrainian government and a whole bunch of other reasons why we were 
sort of skeptical of providing them huge amounts of support in advance of this, which should be a lesson to us because we can be focused on all of those things and then a country gets invaded and it turns out that there are more important issues on the table. But two things. Look, first of all, we didn't want to believe that the Russians would invade. And of course, people like me who were wrong in that forecast surely didn't help. But then the administration had theories about escalation. And those sure panned out. Escalation. <laughs> well, right. And some of that was predictable. I mean, this crisis has been, if I could just say, like almost a pristine experiment in the plausibility of the thesis that you can use the threat of devastating economic sanctions and diplomatic coercion to deter military action, right? This has been about as pure a test of that case as you could ever hope to have. And I think we have to say that it's not looking good for that theory. But I think that theory shaped a lot of what we were doing. And concomitant with that theory was the fear that we could trigger this invasion in some way if we made it look like we were really making the Ukrainians look tough and stuff. Now, there are things that we could have done that might have helped trigger it. But I thought at the time we could have been doing more. I wasn't saying we should be giving them planes and stuff. Mark, let me be straight. Why wasn't I saying that? Because I figured the Russians would blow up all the planes on the ground the minute this thing started. The fact that the Ukrainians are still flying anything in the air has most Russian military analysts on the floor. Well, why didn't Just they? Just like, how can that be? I don't, I can only conclude that they can't. I have no other explanation except that the Russians somehow can't do that. And I can't tell you why that is. <laughs> just, I will say a moment of sort of pleasure is just musing about how Putin is reacting to the fact that they can't do certain things that really yeah. are pretty darn basic. If you're going to be an evil, mean, despotic government <laughs> that invades your neighbors and intimidates your friends, you probably ought to be able to do that. You probably ought to do, be able to do that shit. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I just don't understand the tools of despotism as well as I should. Let me ask you about that question, the statement you made a second ago, the sanctions not working to deter an invasion. One of the things that I think that a lot of us have seen in this era of sanctions love, right? We sanctioned the North Koreans, we've sanctioned the Iranians, we've sanctioned the Chinese, we've done this and that and that and this. And of course, it doesn't end up having a huge effect because it turns out they want those nuclear weapons. They want to occupy those islands. They want to do the bad things that they're determined to do. But in the case of Ukraine, isn't the real problem with sanctions that in fact they were only imposed after the invasion started? I don't think so, Danny. I mean, I wanted us to be doing some sanctioning. I wanted us to be imposing a cost on Putin for dragging out the crisis. We were not going to deter him from attacking whatever sanctions we did. We were bringing the sanctions to a gunfight. And I mean, this is my feeling all along and my assessment all along, honestly, was that if Putin had decided to invade Ukraine or if he was willing to invade Ukraine if other efforts to achieve his aims failed, the threat of sanctions is not going to deter him because once he's at that level of thinking, he's on a whole other plane that sanctions don't touch. So I don't think we could have deterred him with harsher sanctions in advance. I don't think that was the problem. I think we need to recognize that sometimes you have to actually bring a gun to a gunfight and you have to recognize when your enemy is actually determined to have a gunfight and not mistake it for a diplomatic conversation. And I think 
it's obviously a fine line to walk, right? Because sometimes it is a diplomatic conversation that kind of looks like a gunfight. But I think we're just too quick to see everything in terms of messages and conversations. And unfortunately, in the increasingly Hobbesian world that we're living in, we have to be more open to the possibility that our adversaries actually really do mean to settle things by force. Though it seems like both sides miscalculated in the sense that many of us didn't think that he would actually do it, that he would actually invade. And he wasn't deterred because he didn't think we'd actually impose real punitive sanctions on him because he got away with it in 2014 and we imposed very weak sanctions on him. So all of these threats that we made were empty because the Obama-Biden administration didn't impose any costs on him when he seized Crimea. So wasn't there a little bit of miscalculation on both sides? I don't think that was the miscalculation on his side. I don't think he doubted that we would impose these sanctions. I really don't. I think he didn't care. First of all, this wasn't about us. And we need to not, we need to try to be less classically solipsistic Americans, <laughs> right? Where everybody, everything is about us all the time. I know, good luck to me. Where everything is about us all the time and everybody's making decisions based on what we do or say. And I thought all along that Putin was primarily gauging what was going on in Ukraine and whether he was going to get what he wanted in Ukraine and then gauging wrongly, as it happens, Ukraine's willingness and ability to resist him if he did this, and that those were the factors that were driving him. Look, if we had wanted to deter him, we would have needed to tell him and demonstrate that we were serious, that we were going to fight him if he invaded Ukraine. I don't think anything less than that would have deterred him, honestly. And of course, we said exactly the opposite. We said explicitly. Right. We said exactly the opposite. Exactly. So let me take you back to the day-to-day for a second, because you and uh, Kim Kagan's Institute for the Study of War and her folks have been doing just unbelievable and valuable work in bringing, I would say, policymakers, nerds like us, reporters, and everybody else who's interested in what's going on, terrific daily reports on the military state of play in Ukraine. And we'll put up a link for our listeners to those reports. But where are we now? What's happening now? So the Russian main effort remains Kiev, and they seem to have given up thinking that they can rush the city. And now they seem to be focusing on trying to envelop it. And that large armored column that came down from the north has been shifting around to the west, likely to try to encircle Kiev and cut it off. Shockingly, to my surprise, the Ukrainians apparently have been able to battle with those Russian forces as they've been trying to encircle it. And so Now I'm seeing initial indications that the Russians have actually sort of moving a little bit further west to try to get around and envelop Kiev from that direction. At the same time, you can't see my arms moving on the imaginary map that I'm showing you. No, but Mark and I are literally looking at the ISW map as you speak. Right. So as they come down on the east bank of the Dnipro River, the Russians have been trying to get down that bank to encircle on the east side, and the Ukrainians have basically stuffed them and stopped them from doing that in Kiev itself. And then if you see the little town of Chernihiv near the border, the Russians have been trying to take that because it's an important road junction, and they haven't been able to do that either. So now there's a Russian force coming from the east that's been trying to link up, and the Ukrainians have been sort of stopping that too. So As it stands now, the Russians are still working at this sort of envelopment and encirclement of the capital, 
I don't know whether they're going to be able to complete it or not. At the distance from the capital that they're operating, it would take a lot of combat power to complete the encirclement and then to hold it. And I'm not sure that they have that, but I don't know enough about what combat power they're bringing down from Belarus now to know if they can do that. But right now, they've been trying to encircle it and the Ukrainians have stopped them. That's the situation around Kyiv. The Russians have also been trying to take the city of Kharkiv. And it is noteworthy that this is a city that people have been talking about as sort of this is a Russian-friendly city and there's a lot of Russian speakers in Kharkiv and like that. And so... This is where Yukashenko fled after Maidan, right? Right. So people were sort of expecting Kharkiv not to put up too much of a fight and stuff. Yeah, well, no. The citizens of Kharkiv have changed like many other Ukrainians since 2014 and are Ukrainian. And it doesn't matter whether they speak Russian or Ukrainian, they identify as Ukrainian. And so when the Russians came in and tried to conduct basically frontal assaults on the city, the Ukrainians just stuffed them. So the Russians have been, as I'm sure you've seen now, just devastating the city with air and artillery bombardments and reported these thermobaric bombs and stuff, trying, I think, to do two things. One is to sort of set conditions for another ground attack. And they did try something last night that also got stuffed. But I think they're also trying to intimidate the citizens of Kharkiv and use that as an example for other Ukrainian cities to try to persuade people to surrender. That's going to fail. So right now, Kharkiv is being destroyed, but the Russians have not been able to make real gains on the ground. The situation is different in the south for a variety of reasons. The Russians concentrated a lot of combat power in Crimea, drove north from there, and then went in three directions. They went east toward Mariupol, which is a city close to the border of where the proxy republics are controlled by Russia. And the fight is going on. It's not clear to me at this moment whether or not the Russians have encircled Mariupol. They claimed that they did. The Ukrainians have denied it. I'm not sure exactly where that is, but there will be a tough fight in Mariupol. And then the Russians also went west and tried to take the city of Kherson. And then that would allow them to continue driving west toward Nikolaev, which is the headquarters of the Ukrainian Navy, and then further west to Odessa. It is amazing to me that the Russians have not been able to take Kherson and that the city has gone back and forth and that the Ukrainians have been able to retake areas from Russia. This is one of the things that also sort of blows my mind because I was able to imagine Ukrainian defenders holding on to ground against Russian attackers, but it never occurred to me that we would see Ukrainian counterattacks repeatedly regain territory from Russian forces. And that's gone on in Kherson and elsewhere. And then the last drive from Crimea was straight north toward the lower bend of the Dnipro River, which was potentially worrisome and is potentially worrisome in a variety of ways, but seems to have stalled out for now. So it's kind of the battle space for now. And it's relatively static at the moment as the Russians try to do the encirclement of Kiev and are trying to take Mariupol and Kherson. But it's static for the moment. I don't expect it to stay that way, but that's how it is right now. So the theme I'm getting from what you just said is you kept saying the Russians tried X and they got stuffed. The Russians tried Y and they got stuffed. The Russians tried Z and they got stuffed. They're getting stuffed a lot. Are the Ukrainians just holding off the inevitable or could they pull this off? Could they fight this to a standstill and stop the Russians from taking short of 
a Grozny-like destruction of Kiev, which completely undermines their narrative that they're there for denazification and they're there in support of the Ukrainian people. You don't kill people to denazify them. I mean, short of something that brutal that would just be broadcast in a way no war has ever been done before because of the age of cell phones. I mean, can the Ukrainians prevail? They might. I wouldn't have said that a week ago, and I don't know. I mean, when you just do this sort of raw net assessment and you look at the relative combat power measured in a straightforward tanks, men, airplanes, artillery pieces, whatever, your answer is no way. When you start looking at what's going on on the ground, then the answer becomes maybe, and here's the reason. One of the things that's hard about mechanized maneuver warfare is that you have a lot of moving pieces and the art is in part to concentrate a lot of different forces together at the right time and place to overwhelm defenders. The way to lose war generally, but especially in this kind of warfare, is if you send your forces forward a few at a time and allow an outnumbered defender to fight them a few at a time, then that's kind of how you get like Thermopylae, right? And that can obviously end the way that it did for the Spartans, right? Which is they fought incredibly bravely and killed unbelievable numbers of Persians and then they all died. But the odds and the situation are a little bit different here. So if the Russians could get their act together and actually begin conducting large-scale maneuver operations where they bring a whole bunch of battalions to bear against much outnumbered Ukrainian defenders, you could start to see the Ukrainians unraveling quickly. But so far, the Russians haven't shown any ability to do that. And if the Russians can't do that, and if they allow the Ukrainians to continue to fight them a bit at a time, it's not impossible at this point that the Ukrainians actually could beat them off. I think General Petraeus put it well. I saw him quoted earlier today saying, could they take Kiev? I kind of doubt it at this point. Even if they did, they'll lose because they might be able to beat down the Ukrainian conventional military. And they might, I mean, the numbers are just so bad for the Ukrainians. You still would have to bet on that if you were just looking at the history of warfare. But if they do that, you're going to have an insurgency of the sort that we haven't seen since Afghanistan. I mean, the Soviet Afghanistan, not what we did. And the Russians will lose. The Russians do not have the capability to handle that. And they will lose that insurgency if they get there. So in that sense, Putin has already lost this war. And the real question is, how much damage does he do in the process of losing it? So here's a two-pronged question based on what you just said. Number one, it's looking increasingly possible, if not likely, that the Ukrainians could prevail and defend Kiev and deny the Russians the opportunity to take it. What support do they need from us to accomplish that goal? And then second, if they do, as you point out, there's going to be an insurgency. We have long experience in supporting anti-Soviet insurgencies. That was the Reagan doctrine in the 1980s, where we supported the Contras in Nicaragua. We supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. We supported UNITA in Angola. We had a model for this. You've been studying insurgency for the better part of two decades now after the war on terror. What have you learned from that study that could be lessons for the Ukrainians in how to run a successful insurgency, and how could we support that? So I think the West is generally giving the Ukrainians what they need most right now in terms of weapons, which is they need the anti-tank weapons and they need the anti-aircraft weapons, especially the man-portable ones. And it's amazing to me, Mark, 
it's still stingers, man. <laughs> I mean, it's still, we're back in 1985 and it's still, nobody has a really good answer to that. And it's still stingers shooting at hips. It's actually the same Russian air force. <laughs> so, I mean, amazingly, it's still those weapon systems and they're incredibly important and we need to be, you know, stocking them. But I think that that's going on. There's a humanitarian requirement in Ukraine that we really have to be paying a lot of attention to also. The Russians are destroying the economy, which was being damaged beforehand anyway. The Ukrainians are going to need food. They're going to need fuel. They're going to need to be able to live. And that's a massive undertaking. And I know people are mobilizing to do it, but that's going to be super important. Are we providing them with real-time intelligence? This was reported in Playbook the other day that there was a debate in the NSC whether if we provided them with real-time intelligence on Russian positions, does that make us co-belligerents under the laws of war? And just the idea that anyone's discussing that rather than sharing intelligence. You never let a lawyer in the room in those you know, circumstances. Are we providing them with intelligence on Russian positions and helping them in that way? Look, I don't know, and nobody without a clearance can really tell you that. I can tell you that miraculously, you know, Russian attempts to conduct coup d'etat against Zelensky were revealed. And amazingly, Zelensky learned of them and actions were taken and then they were publicized. I don't think the Ukrainians turned all that stuff up on their own. Are we pinpointing Russian vehicle positions? I don't know. I'm not sure we need to. I think the Ukrainians know where this stuff is pretty well. So I don't know what we're doing, but let me just say, I have not heard any complaining from the Ukrainian side that we're not providing the kind of support that they need along those lines. So I would say draw what conclusions you will from that. In terms of the insurgency, listen, this is what I'll tell you from my studies of insurgency for the last 20 years. The Russians are screwed. <laughs> um, Music okay. to our Seriously. ears. Amen. All right. Because you're talking about a country of 44 million angry people who are now armed to the teeth, and Zelensky's been giving out all kinds of weapons. Weapons are flooding into the country, and they have been given time to prepare. This is one of the most terrible things from Putin's perspective that's going on as this drags out, is that Ukrainians are not just preparing to defend conventionally, they're also preparing for the insurgency. So this will go right into an insurgency phase as the Russians win in any particular area. The networks are forming, they're getting technical help. Thank you, Elon Musk, for... <laughs> That's really, amazing. Really, really. thank God, you. God bless Elon Musk. You know, Tell people I mean, what he did if they're not familiar. So he's got Starlink satellites, and the issue with the satellites is they need ground terminals to receive them so that you can get internet via satellite. And he sent ground terminals into Ukraine, and Ukrainians have said that they received them so that that makes it very much harder for the Russians to interfere with Ukrainians' ability to interact with the world and with each other. And, you know, we've entered a whole new world of technology here where there are satellite systems and other capabilities that can make it really hard for the Russians to just sort of take a country offline. And that kind of thing is important. Communications are really important. Ukraine is in much more danger if we lose its voice and if we lose its voice to the world and if Ukrainians lose their ability to speak with each other. So those kinds of things are super important. But Mark, just the scale of the problem that the Russians face, you know, do, I'm, I'm not going to try to do the math off the top of my head again, but do one to 50 on the population, which is your standard counterinsurgency ratio on 44 million people. And I'll be generous, make it 30 million people. Okay. And tell me how many troops that works out to. That's your counterinsurgent requirement. The Russians don't have that. 
And if they did, it would be their entire security service devoted to fighting an insurgency in Ukraine, which I think in the end they would not win. So that's one optimistic note. But right now, I'm not prepared to say that it will even get there because the Russians are going to have to show a lot more capability than they have so far if they're actually going to defeat the Ukrainians, even in this conventional phase of the fight. So I have an exit question, but I also have an answer to Mark's question, a really interesting article. You're right, Fred. Technology is so staggering. It's not just the Starlink that the Ukrainians have gotten. We can see because there are tons and tons of transponders and trackers now. And everybody knows I'm an airplane trucker nerd. So one of the sites... I don't uh, think our listeners knew that about you, Danny. Yeah, I am a little bit. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, I know it's yet another one of these sad facts about my life. But they showed some of the uh, aircraft in the space around Ukraine. And those skies are crowded. I mean, we've got British surveillance planes. We've got Blackhawks in Poland. We've got other NATO aircraft. We've got number of refueling aircraft. We've got a lot of stuff flying up there. And I can't imagine that it's just in order to observe. My guess is that we're, and I hope that we are sharing that information. And I'll post a link to that for everybody to see it because it really is kind of interesting. My exit question. We watched the president's State of the Union yesterday. This isn't a podcast about the State of the Union, so I'm not going to go into my deep disappointment with it. But one of the things that the president intimated was, well, you know, we're not going to fight in Ukraine, so you guys are on your own. But don't you dare think about going into one of these NATO countries, Vladimir Putin. What do you think? that Vladimir Putin is thinking. Is Ukraine his end game? Do you give any credit to the idea that he's really sort of lost touch with the reality of the situation on the ground? Do you think this can spread into a wider conflict? That's like 85 questions. So just answer what you want. Well, look, I mean, Ukraine has never been his end game. So there was always going to be another play or series of plays in his mind. I think he's probably a little busy right now and a little overcommitted on this particular task to decide that he's going to go after the Baltic states right this moment, for example. But it can spread in other ways, and I think we need to be ready for that. And it can spread over time as well. And I think on the one hand, it's cheering to watch the incompetence and incapacity of the Russian military thus far. On the other hand, militaries learn and militaries adapt. And whatever the specific outcome of this, you can bet that the Russians will go to school on it and on what they got wrong here and start fixing it. The size of the force that they've assembled would pose a very serious threat to Poland or Romania, let alone the Baltic states, even apart from the air and missile threat that, in principle, they should theoretically be able to pose, although, again, I'm baffled by the fact that it hasn't posed that kind of threat to the Ukrainians. We need to take that seriously. And... This is a case where I'm glad the administration has started to do some important things like moving troops into Poland and Romania, but we're going to need to do more than that. And we need to recognize that there is once again a conventional threat to NATO's eastern flank. There hasn't been one for 30 years. And the entire structure of the defensive alliance and the U.S. defense budget and all of our national security strategies has rested on the premise that there was no conventional military threat to Europe's eastern flank. And that premise has collapsed. And if we're going to make sure to deter Putin from messing around in actual NATO countries, we can't treat the NATO border like some magically impermeable wall that he will never cross even if we don't defend it. We're going to have to put forces opposite. There are forces on our side of the NATO borders 
that communicate clearly to him, like in the old sign, don't even think of parking here. And deter by taking off the table any theory that he might, even in his delusional state, hold that he could succeed if he initiated a war against NATO. We're not there yet. And I think we need to move there as fast as we can to end that conversation before it starts. Exit question from me. I think the poles and the bolts are safer now than they were a week ago, thanks to the Ukrainians. I think it's less likely that Putin would try something. As you say, he's got his hands full right now. Is Taiwan safer because of the Ukrainians? What are the Chinese thinking as they watch this and they see the tenacity of the Ukrainians with this overmatched Russian military? Are they thinking, my God, the Russians are so weak and our military is so much better and we would crush Taiwan in five seconds? Or are they thinking, wow, Putin really underestimated the tenacity of the Ukrainian fighters. Maybe we should think twice about what kind of resistance we would face in Taiwan. Look, I think, first of all, I'm very enthusiastic about where the Ukrainians are right now compared to where I expect them to be. This could all change tomorrow. And the reported words of Mao when asked about the French Revolution are ringing in my ears. It's too soon to tell what conclusions exactly to draw from this. If she is not a fool and if she is more in touch with reality than Putin, and I have no opinion about either one of those propositions, then he will be looking hard at his generals and saying, uh, how would this go down if I ordered this? How confident are we that this would go down the way you guys say that it would? That would be very much on my mind if I were in Xi's place. But I don't know remotely enough about Xi's way of thinking or how much people tell him to know if he's thinking that way, which he should be. Well, Fred, this has been amazing. I'm waiting and following all of the information that you're putting out, and it really is our window into what's happening. So keep up the unbelievably good work, and don't be mad if we ask you to come on again. <laughs> I'd be delighted. Thank you so much, and thanks for the kind words and the support. Thank you. All right, Danny, usually we end on a depressing note. I'm actually encouraged by what Fred said, because basically, whether he takes Kiev or not, Putin is lost. Because the worst thing that could happen to him probably would be to succeed in taking Kiev as opposed to pulling out. The best thing could happen to him would be to realize this was a mistake and pull back and lick his wounds and live to fight another day. Because if he does take Kiev, as Fred said, there's going to be an insurgency. It's going to be the Soviets in Afghanistan all over again. And there are going to be Russians going home in body bags. And that could threaten his regime. So I don't know if they're going to be able to hold off protecting the capital. But... I think this is a defeat for Putin no matter what happens. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I agree with you. I think what we heard from Fred was very heartening. I don't know whether the story is going to end. I don't think any story like this can ever end happily, honestly. People have died. Innocent Ukrainians, duped Russian soldiers, bystanders, foreigners as well have been killed. People's livelihoods and their homes and their schools have been destroyed. Their cities have been leveled. So there, there's never a happy ending in war, but certainly it is just an absolute miracle of the 21st century to watch what is happening in Ukraine and how they are standing up. I think the question that was in my mind after our conversation with Fred was just this question about sanctions. We rely so heavily on them. And for the most part, I am a huge cheerleader of sanctions, certainly against Iran, but also in other circumstances. But Fred said that there were no sanctions that would have worked, that would have deterred Putin from invading Ukraine. What do you think? Thomas Jefferson contended that in foreign affairs, quote, three alternatives alone are to be chosen from. One, embargo. 
two war, three submission and tribute, end quote. For me, submission and tribute is off the table, so it's either war or sanctions. Obviously, sanctions are preferable to war whenever possible. But I think what happened is that both sides miscalculated. I think that we didn't think the Russians would do it. And so we did not take a lot of the steps to prepare for this day that we should have in advance. We should have been arming the Ukrainians to the teeth before this. We should have been imposing the sanctions before the Russians invaded to deter them. And I don't think the Russians thought that we were going to impose the sanctions or the world would stand by Ukraine in the way it did. So I think it's a combination. I think if we had imposed the sanctions earlier, and I mean serious sanctions, like the ones that are in place now, and there still could be more. We still haven't done oil and gas, which just boggles my mind. And we had at the same time armed the Ukrainians in a very, very clear way. For example, sent those fighter jets, those old MiGs, to Ukraine from Eastern Europe before a conflict started, and no one could complain about that, right? Then maybe they would have been deterred from acting. Yeah, maybe. I remember after Putin invaded and took and annexed Crimea and then invaded the, the Donbass, Donetsk and, and Luhansk, we had the option of providing, and Congress very much wanted us to provide lethal support to the Ukrainians to defend themselves, and the Obama administration refused. The Obama-Biden administration. The Obama-Biden administration refused, and the Trump administration actually reversed that not to the point where I think they have as much as they need to defend themselves. And I think countries always want more when they're defending themselves. But the Biden administration, much like the predecessor in the Obama-Biden term, has been very hesitant. And I think part of the reason, Fred rightly said, is that people worried about the nature of the government in Kiev. They worried about the fact that there was a lot of corruption, which there was, that governance is not terrific. But all of those things do pale in comparison to the notion of being overtaken and swallowed by a vicious tyrant next door without any redress from the democratic world. Yeah. I think we should have been stronger to prevent this because a lot of lives could have been saved. But I think in the long run, the Ukrainians in their resistance to Putin have done the world an incredible service because I think that as Fred said, I can't imagine that the Chinese are not having serious conversations right now with their military about whether things would go differently in Taiwan than they have in Ukraine and what kind of resistance they would face and what kind of ability they would have. I think the chances of the North Koreans doing something aggressive against uh, South Korea are probably lessened, not because of our deterrence, but because of the Ukrainian resistance. And then I think Putin, in addition, has all the objectives that he set out are being defeated. He wanted to push NATO away from his borders, and instead NATO is moving closer to his borders because we have more troops in the Baltics and Poland. And if our president has any balls of steel <laughs> comparable to uh, Zelensky, a uh, revolting image, we would move NATO's European command to Poland and set up permanent bases in Poland. I think it's less likely that he's going to attack the Balts and some of these other countries after what he's been through there. And he's also done something which. I tried to do when I was working with George W. Bush, I wrote the speeches, failed to do, Barack Obama failed to do, Donald Trump sort of succeeded a little bit, but wasn't able to do, which is get NATO to start meeting its 2% commitments. The Germans announced that, and the best thing that ever happened to us is that this all happened after Merkel left, but the Germans have announced that they're going to spend 2% of their GDP on defense, not by 2030, now. And so he's unified the NATO alliance in a way that uh, no president has been able to do. I mean, this could end up being a wholesale catastrophe for Vladimir Putin. 
Well, from your mouth to God's ears that it will be a wholesale catastrophe for him. So the note I want to end on is what I want to see is us having a good hard look as a country at what we did to deter Putin, at what we've done to deter him in the future, and what we are doing to stand up to those powers in the world, whether it's the Chinese or the Iranians or it's the Russians that want to rearrange the world according to their own design, because now is the moment we need to be figuring that out. Maybe the sanctions wouldn't have been enough to deter him from invading Ukraine, as Fred said, but they sure as hell were not so serious that I think he even needed to have a second thought. Putting sanctions on ex post facto doesn't do much except make us feel good about ourselves. Well, it's ourselves. punishment versus strategy. Right. Punishing Putin is not the goal. Stopping Putin is the goal. And again, the other thing is weakness is provocative. I always use that phrase, but it's true. In 2014, when he invaded Crimea, one, as you point out, we did not provide the Ukrainians with the lethal aid they asked for to defend their country. And two, we didn't impose the kinds of sanctions that had any impact on the Russian economy back then. And he didn't see why it would be any different now. The combination of that and the withdrawal from Afghanistan the shameful abandoning of our allies there. The disinvestment uh, in defense. The disinvestment in defense. I mean, we need to come to Jesus moment right now for America. On this West. Ash Wednesday. On this Ash Wednesday, absolutely. I've got my ashes, Danny. We need to come to Jesus moment to say, I'm sorry, but what we're spending on defense is not enough. As Jack Keane pointed out, we don't have a two-war capability anymore. And we need one. Our NATO allies are starting to realize they need to start spending more on defense. We need to start taking the real threat seriously and also our energy security, which is national security. We need to stop disinvesting in fossil fuels before all these alternative energy sources are ready to take up the slack because that has put us in a weakened position. The only sanctions we haven't imposed that are serious ones are oil and gas sanctions because Biden is afraid to raise the cost of gasoline. So we need to revisit a lot of issues here. A lot of work for the GOP Congress when they come Amen. into power. <laughs> Guys, thanks for listening. Let us know what you think about us having two episodes this week, whether that was a good idea. Subscribe to our Substack. It'll have all of the links that we've talked about today. And uh, thanks for your support and thank you for listening. Take care.